Welcome to The Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger. The podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side, and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. So welcome everyone to our fourth annual Lions Data Conference. I've said this time and again, it's so easy to see people in person. And thank you to our panelists for coming out here. We're super excited. You're our first panel group, so that's super exciting. I'm not going to take the honors of introducing themselves because I think these guys are going to do a way better job at that than me. So the floor is all yours. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. I think Gordon, Stanley, and I are of the rare breed where I think this is actually more fun than being on the beach for a Sunday. <laughs> and um, you'll sort of start to understand why we're so passionate about this matter over the course of the next 45 minutes. My name is Josh Krieger. I'm one of the co-hosts and co-founders of Edge Up Company. We produce the Edge of NFT podcast, which is one of the top NFT podcasts in the world. And we also host NFTLA, the inaugural one about 4,000 attendees, 150 satellite events, 11 million media impressions. People really care a lot about what's going on in this space. That was a lesson learned there. And we'll be hosting that again March 2023, so 3-2023-2023. I'm also building the space, advising the space, and just really passionate about real utility-based approaches to NFTs. And I should mention part of my background in a former life before being an entrepreneur, as I worked in federal government consulting, and I helped program the geospatial line of business and do some data analytics projects around homelessness and veterans. And so, you know, that's where I really learned about the power of data in open government and, and what can be done sort of in the innovation world. I actually started the first ever innovation lab in the federal government of housing and urban development, which was Full of bureaucratic challenges, but um, opportunities to really empower the stakeholder with information and bring them into what the government is doing. I think we'll see a lot of these similar trends, what's now possible with data and NFTs and open science, which we'll talk about today. And I would love to hear from Stanley and Gordon a little bit about yourselves and why this topic is relevant to the work that you do. Hey guys, yeah, my name's uh, Stanley Bishop. A mathematician who works as a data scientist and a machine learning scientist. Typically, I build computer systems that help scientists in other fields use machine learning in their research. I also have run a sort of like alternative art tech incubator in Venice Beach called Space Post Labs for the past 10 years as sort of just community service practice. And we just kind of try to bring technology and art together in interesting ways. That was kind of my entree to NFTs was like them becoming an incredibly powerful tool for building inclusion for artists. And then having gotten some cool exposure to NFTs and Web3 in the art space, I've kind of discovered that in my main life as a scientist, they have some incredible contributions. So recently I've been contributing as an architect, a, a sort of bioinformatics solutions architect to a project called LabDAO, which I'm really excited to talk about, but very roughly. LabDAO is looking to use transparency in the blockchain to lead to scientific reproducibility and stability of software, which is a really big problem in the field of genetics and bioinformatics. And then, yeah, I can also kind of queue up handing the microphone to Gordon because I think for LabDAO, which is looking to 
support scientific projects. Gordon's project is probably like the most important one we're working on right now. So. Hi, I'm Gordon. Um, Stanley is our chief architect of the project that he that we're working on together called New Atlantis, which is an ocean region now. And so we're very focused on building biodiversity markets for the oceans. By way of background, I've been, I mean, this is going to severely date me because I think I'm clearly the oldest person in the room here. Probably. Um, and Chloe, you and I both, man. Um, anyway, like I've been in the internet business since like the early 90s. I did a 10-year stint with my wife and business partner where we built and sold a CPG company, built it to $200 million in revenue and exited to Unilever in 2020. And I've been working full-time in crypto since then. I have been an investor in crypto since 2016. I have raised a lot of venture and PE money over the course of my career. I've done digital publishing, early mobile communications platforms, early social web and social shopping. And now uh, New Atlantis is our full-time focus. And New Atlantis started because there, I don't know if any, do you guys have Apple TV? Is anybody here have an Apple TV? So like, the picture of the swimming polar bear on the screensaver. So that the guy who shot that is a guy named Paul Nicklin, and he's one of the founding partners of New Atlantis, along with me and Stanley. He is the most followed photographer on Instagram as well in any category, and his wife is the most followed female photographer. And so we originally started New Atlantis as like, oh, let's sell some NFTs and raise money for ocean projects, but quickly realized that the NGO model super broken and thought and after spending basically a year of studying ocean conservation and emerging opportunities, really have focused in on this idea of biodiversity markets. And so I'm sure most of all, not all of you have heard of carbon credits in the carbon market. And really, there's carbon and there's climate, which is really kind of a proxy for carbon. Carbon's a proxy for that. And there's nature, which is really biodiversity. And nature gets forgotten a lot in a lot of these things and having a planet that's the right temperature but with no life is not really a win and so we're very focused on both preserving the marine biodiversity and also it's worth noting that the ocean sequesters 16 times more carbon than the total combined area of all terrestrial ecosystems and most of that sequestration comes through life and so we're building new lands. We'll be selling NFTs as memberships into the community. We may be doing one-on-one NFTs for high-end collectors with Paul and Christine's work. Very interested in sort of using NFTs as governance tools as well. So not just as collectibles. What was the product that you sold to Unilever? Uh, I thought that's a gummy vitamin brand called Smarty Pants. decentralized science, which is sort of, I think, the underpinning for this whole conversation and how that movement is serviced by the utility that NFTs offer. Heck yeah. My favorite topic, I asked my girlfriend hard to get me to shut up about it, so it's great <laughs> to be here with y'all again on this, <laughs> on this Sunday. And yet decentralized science has been fascinating, 
To me, a lot of the practices grow out of the field of open source science. I've been a contributor to various open source science projects for quite a while, and you see incredible successes, but then you see a lot of the same kind of failures, particularly when a project reaches the point where there's a lot of demand and it needs to scale. If the project didn't kind of start out with a motive, a profit motive alignment, it's very challenging for an open source project to kind of pivot into systemic operationalization for a number of reasons, but one of the biggest is money. It's sort of like when you have a project that wasn't originally envisioned with profit motive, it can be hard to fit it into the four corners of a business deck in a way that venture capitalists would normally understand. One project I contribute to that's a really beautiful project is actually called a DeepCam. It's out of Stanford. It's a lot of the same people who do holding at home, which I think is such a fascinating example of free blockchain decentralized science, right? But this is just a really interesting project because it's a bunch of very high-level quantum simulation tools for molecular dynamics. And it's stuff that's done with the best-in-class software practices. So in uh, bioinformatics, there's a little factoid that we should all be ashamed of. The more impactful a piece of bioinformatics technology is in terms of research, the less likely it is to run in terms of code. <laughs> and it's the only field where that's true. There's like a big cultural issue in bioinformatics that to me all spins from over-centralization. And yeah, so to sort of bring an example home, this project DeepChem has maybe the most stable, reliable, reproducible tools for quantum simulation of molecular dynamics. And the tools have been, you know, started to be used by big pharma companies all over the place, but then the struggle to get enough developer time to sort of do the work as the tools become more popular, because it sort of started within an open context. And in the Web2 world, I think it is difficult to pivot into a profit or a partially profit context. Yeah, I'm thinking about going down the rabbit hole, which is to sort of think of everything you just said in relation to sort of the COVID vaccine sort of process and the fact that that was semi-permeable, which is a big deal for a sort of situation where most of the time that doesn't even happen, right? But it also, with it came a lot of challenges. And I guess maybe you can, can talk to your perspective there as it relates to open science, but also like, what about these NFTs? How do they fit into the mix? Oh, great question. Oh man, you opened up even a different can of worms with the, um, the COVID vaccine. Cause you know, we were really very fortunate that we did have the mRNA technology for, you know, the J and J vaccine, which was a DNA vaccine, but was sort of not so good. And I think a lot of the easier season we're having so far with COVID, knock on wood, is, is because the mRNA vaccines do produce like really uh, robust immunity. That almost didn't happen. Like there's actually a particular female scientist who I think is going to win the next biology Nobel for her work. And she believed that mRNA vaccines would be possible. She was told by her institution they weren't possible. And if you don't stop studying them, we're terminating your employment here. It's not a subject we're interested in supporting. She left and founded a company and is now going to be a legendary hero for, for the rest of you know, history. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of situations where over-centralization of decision-making in science leads to really bad outcomes. But yeah, what would lead to good outcomes? And then how does this NFT stuff like fit into the picture? At LabDAO, we're doing a really interesting thing. We're actually taking bioinformatics workflows and putting them on chain in a reproducible way. So for example, New Atlantis is creating what's called a metagenome pipeline. It's basically a system that takes 
every little fragment of DNA that's present in a cubic yard of ocean water and produces a taxonomy of what species that DNA is evidence of, and even gets some of the details of the metabolic interactions between the, the different creatures. So it's a really powerful piece of bioinformatics technology only been possible in the past few years, and typically if you find it, it won't run. So bringing this back to NFTs, I mean, a lot of people talk about NFTs as little mini computer computers with layers of, of metadata. Is that the connection we're talking about here? 100% that the workflow would exist as an NFT on the blockchain, and the relationships the NFT has with the workflows that have been executed off of it are transparent. So you can see what success people have had with different hardwares, different software configurations, and all of that becomes like a sort of shared and learnable common, common source database. Cool. Gordon, maybe you can help us sort of bring traditional blockchain infrastructure and tokenomics into this. As you're looking at New Lennison's ambitious project that you have, it seems like there's a hybrid economy here where you've got NFTs that serve a purpose from a metadata layer that's in this room, but also there's some benefits with some of the pure blockchain infrastructure and tokenomics. How do you see those two fitting together? Yeah, I think NFTs have a couple of roles. One is the one that Stanley just sort of outlined in the workflow. Second, as Coach I alluded to earlier, was really membership, which, you know, those can be different sort of tiered memberships, and that's more about access and direct fundraising into the DAO. The third one really also could be essentially NFTs that represent certain areas within the ocean, right? So people can buy into a square kilometer of ocean. And then as we fund, and to your question about tokenomics, as we start to develop biocredits based on the biodiversity within that square kilometer, those can get essentially put into the piggy bank of that NFT. Can, can I, if I buy part of the ocean and support your project, can I fly into there in the metaverse and hang out with the... Wait, with is, the it, is it okay if I drive for just a second? Because like, heck yeah. I mean, even just like, can we get you to do that and tell the story? Because I think that's part of the power of the kind of community building that we're excited about. Not just that, like... I, certainly, it's an important thing that we're talking about here is that narrative, that storytelling that makes more people curious about the project, right? That's part of the power of NFTs. Yep. And the ability to sort of like leverage that community engagement into monetization and commercial reality, like that storytelling is a huge part of the model. And I was uh, sort of excitedly sharing that uh, Oxford Nanopore liked a tweet of mine with Gordon at the start of this talk. And I don't know if you've heard of Oxford Nanopore, but it's, it's basically a tricorder, Star Trek tricorder for DNA. It's like a little device you can plug into your cell phone, take to the beach and sequence the water at the beach. And that's one of the things we're kind of excited about is like empowering citizen scientists to do regenerative work on the oceans and get compensated for it. So you could travel to your favorite MPA, sequence it, and then you know you benefit from the economics of the data. Yeah. I see a collab with Baby Shark coming at some point in the future. <laughs> do you want me to talk about economics? Yes, please. Sorry, that was a little bit of a tangent. No, no, no. So it's probably your point, and to Stanley's point, like narrative is super important in this space, right? Because it's like most people don't care about the technology per se. They want to get behind a story or some art or whatever it is, or, or our cause, or they want to make money. And so NFT appreciation, you know, price appreciation is certainly one area to do it. But really, our focus, like I said, is on marine biodiversity markets. And so NFTs can be kind of containers that can hold these bio credits in the day. 
but the bio credits will really be like a fungible layer and empower the overall community. The estimated value by from the International Monetary Fund, which is a giant, you know, potentially ethically questionable international institution, manages trillions of dollars. They have put a price tag on the ecosystem value of the oceans at around thirty trillion dollars a year. So putting actual pricing onto these ecosystem services represents like a massive decatrillion type opportunity to build a market. Those fungible layers will allow the NFTs to accrue value, not just on the art side, but actually as they represent certain aspects of the ocean, or like Stanley was talking about, pieces of the IP that is developed either by the DAO and the metagenome pipeline, or that people build on top of our platform. So how do you create a sustainable tokenomics model there that isn't going to be another Axie Infinity or one of the many projects that we had high hopes for, but ultimately it correlated strongly with the markets and flatlined, or is that even possible? I mean, tokenomics is a hugely complex question, and the real answer right now is that we don't know all the answers, but we are big believers in the idea that, A, we have to try, because, you know, like as Elon says about SpaceX or whatever, the odds are likely that they'll fail, but like you kind of need to take the swing because what's the alternative? My feeling is that, and this kind of gets down into a little bit of weeds, but there's something called a marine protected area, which is essentially like a national park for the oceans. So the UN, the United Nations, has said that we need to get about 30% of the oceans into these MPAs by 2030. Right now, we have less than 8% of the oceans are in MPAs, and the ones that are nominally in in MPAs, only like really 3% of them actually have even marginal funding to to manage their enforcement. So you have like a scenario where you've got effectively got a 10x amount of ocean that needs to be adequately protected to protect our marine biosphere. And these MPAs are government programs, often in the global south, where in a world where we're increasing energy shortage, increasing food shortage, deglobalization, which is going to impact supply chain and inflation for anybody who's like downstream of the dollar is going to be very problematic. So it's, very unlikely that Global South governments are going to be positioned to adequately fund these MPAs. What we can do is we can go and we can look at the MPAs and evaluate the health of those MPAs and start to generate both carbon credits and eventually biodiversity credits that can be used to fund that MPA. But speculators are also able to participate in that because they can bet early that a value, a square kilometer or square meter or cubic meter, I guess in the case of water column, will have a discount associated with it today because the data resolution won't be as good as it will be in three to five years as our platform gets developed and we get more and more time series data. So there's an idea of almost like green bonds that people can buy into. So I think the problem with like an Axie is that the game wasn't that fun to begin with, which is problematic in a game, but it was also really a child of like excess liquidity in the marketplace. Like in our case, we have 120, 130 million kilometers that need to be protected by the oceans. And so that's a big speculative opportunity. And a lot of governments are also going to be looking to swap their nature-based assets for debt that they owe. And so by being able to price the value of those marine ecosystems, we can actually help them swap like living ecosystems instead of like forcing them into situations where they've got to exploit those ecosystems to make debt payments. Very cool. 
So as we think about all these opportunities, some sort of core things always come up. And one of those things is IP ownership. And I think particularly interesting topic when it comes to science and, and what we're talking about here with decentralization and sort of encouraging innovation. At the same time, people want skin in the game. They're going to dedicate their lives to research and want some value back because let's face it, they're not the highest paying jobs all the time, right? So you're really... Particularly in academia. Yeah. So Stanley, I'd love to sort of get your perspective on how NFTs and IP interact and one of the ways that you're thinking about data science and IP, right? Oh, man, 100%. So you know, I mentioned LabDAO supporting them in cloud architecture for you know data science and bioinformatics. They have some partner DAOs I also kind of work with through the relationship and really interesting to mention in particular uh, BetaDAO and uh, Molecule. Molecule has a very banger DSI podcast that you started too, which is worth checking out. BetaDAO, a longevity DAO, and I think their articulation of the, the research use case towards uh, human longevity is one that's very suited to decentralized science is interesting. You know, like a lot of pharma companies, it might not make sense as a profit motive for them to be researching like extending life. It might not be. There's certainly situations where it is, but sort of like allocating funds specifically to extend human lifespan is something we all have an interest in. And it's kind of cool to see it happening in a decentralized way. Molecule, oh, what's there? Let's bring that back to IP, right? And like, I mean, how does that fit in with these DAOs and with the work that you guys are doing? And how is it different than traditional IP assignment? Well, yeah, so BetaDAO and Molecule DAO are both hiring the use case of an IP NFT framework. And so they're both dispensing. I think they have like medium eight-figure fund allocations and they've gotten funds out there. They have maybe about half of their funds out to different labs. And then the IP that those labs are working on will be memorialized in IP NFTs. And so it's some of the first examples of that being done. And it's a thing where the researchers will get residuals for any you know, use of their software citing of their research. Hey there, NFT space cadet. Let's zoom in on the globe from outer space today to Abbott Kinney Boulevard in Venice Beach, LA. Let me show you a cosmic tech beacon that shines out among the bustle of fashion, art, and food there. It's a thriving software dev, data science, and design studio known as AE Studio, where scores of the sharpest minds have come together to help founders and execs create software and machine learning solutions that are not only profitable and increase our agency as humans, but that give us that warm, fuzzy feeling that elegant tech so wonderfully does. AE's breadth of talent allows them to build anything from instillvideo.com it's a health, fitness, and wellness app that makes your chakras tingle to award-winning brain-computer interface solutions that could quite literally bend our minds. Oh, and keep an eye out for Token Runners, their NFT white-label marketplace, as well as our highly anticipated NFT drop, Boomer NFT. Now, for all you DGENs who strive to shed the cummerbund and pearls comes a jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring partnership not seen since the heyday of Shaq and Kobe, it's called Edge of AE Studio, and you can find out all about it at edgeofae.com. That's right, this full-service, soup-to-nuts, end-to-end, whole-enchilada NFT service can help you, yes, you, Randy, launch your NFT project. 
Edge of NFT and AE Studio have come together like Voltron to get your project in gear so you can hightail it straight to the moon, stardom, and maybe even your own private yacht. Go to edgeofae.com to find out more. That's edgeofae.com. Actual results may vary depending on moon landing location, domain of stardom, scale and model of yacht, as well as weather scale model of yacht or actual yacht. You have questions about blockchain? Like, how big of a block can you chain without throwing out your back? Or, if you received that chain letter, how did you block it? And does blockchain taste better, barbecued, or deep fried? <laughs> Luckily, you don't have to ponder these quandaries alone anymore, because Blockchain Training Alliance is here to answer them, and also train you in real-world blockchain issues that will impact your business's bottom line and oriented future forward along the ley lines of the most important tech humanity has perfected since harnessing atomic energy. If you're into those sorts of things, Blockchain Training Alliance is a top leader in the field, counting among its clients IBM, Microsoft, Disney, Morgan Stanley, and many more, and offering a wide array of technical and non-technical courses. Whether you're a computer neophyte training for an incredible career in this new space, or a coding expert honing your skills, Blockchain Training Alliance will help you steer your ship home safely, filled with treasure. <laughs> Arg. So hurry and sign up for the Blockchain Training Alliance course that best fits your needs at blockchaintraininalliance.com. Use discount code EDGEOF for 50% off and start your next block today. Very cool. Gordon, out of curiosity, do you think NFTs further complicate IP assignment or make it easier? I mean, I think both, actually. So I think they make it easier in the way we think about IP for New Atlantis, for example. We want to enable sort of collective intelligence into New Atlantis. And the goal is to create a very broad data set. And so if you can imagine sort of data, like entities that are representative of data sets being uploaded by people, those data sets of ocean data or raw data, it's themselves be an NFT. And those NFTs are used to calculate credits. So those NFTs can actually start to accrue value that way. Similarly with algorithms that people might submit where their algo for making forecasting predictions about ecosystem health, for example, as those get incorporated into the meta model of our approach in terms of calculating biodiversity credits, that NFT that represents that algo can also get a revenue stream associated with it. So in that sense, I think they make things easier because now a random researcher in a lab somewhere who comes up with an interesting mechanistic model to forecast coral reef health or whatever, who might publish a paper that 10 people will read and actually say, okay, well, I can actually upload this to New Atlantis and now there's a revenue stream that can be associated with it. So I think that's a big value unlock. I think it can make things complicated too, just from a regulatory standpoint. Our, we've seen the, the Treasury Department be very aggressive in crypto, particularly in the last week or so. You know, I, they've been going after after tornado cash, which is different, but you never know like what foolishness is likely to come out of the SEC and the, and the Treasury Department around IP. And this, these ideas around accredited invest, you all know what accredited investor status is. Like that's like, in my opinion, a totally stupid law um, or set of laws. And so NFT investment could run afoul of accredited investor laws. So that could be a complication, which you could see, you know, a lot of US citizens being blocked from participating in, in NFT, IP, IP NFTs. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, when we look at like the film world and hanging there, I have another question for you, but 
when we look at the film world and some you know the music royalties, I think it does sort of trigger curiosity by the SEC and and there is sort of this security NFT sort of um, path that's being forged and, and you know everyone's sort of walking or running ahead with partial vision right now and, and trying their best. And you know, my follow-up question on that point is like you come from a big brand background and some pretty regulated environments. This is a project that clearly you're super passionate about. And it was progressing before NFTs yeah. were involved. Like why do you feel like you have to go down this decentralized science path to amplify your work? The ocean is a common good. I mean it's the biggest G you know feature on earth. And so I think it would be I think both the optics and the ethics of it being kind of captive to like a small group of people trying to own the platform that would value biodiversity in the oceans is just extremely problematic. I also think beyond sort of the social justice aspects of it, I think if you really want to aggregate the best collective intelligence from the ocean science community, as well as the regenerative finance community around the world, you want to build an open platform and you want to really align incentives towards creating an economic system where people can contribute data or know-how or useful work in exchange for tokens and that the token price is ultimately linked to improvements in the health of the ecosystem overall. And so if we can really align ecosystem health with value appreciation in the token, then you have a positive upward spiral. And the way that you get sort of broad alignment is you get a lot of people involved. Yeah. I mentioned these guys, we get hundreds of requests to be on the podcast that pour in every month. And it's something I always think about is why is everyone compelled to try this? And I think it's because other methods have failed. And in this seems like it has promise and we have to give it a shot because some of the core components or frameworks of civilization are embedded in use of this technology in terms of how communities gather and build tribe culture and support each other and it can be really profound what's possible here i'm sure the audience does have some questions i could keep going but stanley i did want to one other point to what you're saying too is it like a lot of these things are embedded in sort of our social history but for the first time ever, really, we have a good way of actually distributing funds, right? So, like, the, one of the big problems with conservation work is A, that significant majority goes to wealthy countries, and B, when it does go to global south countries, a lot of the time, just the inefficiencies involved in both the NGO and the government bureaucracies there is that, like, by very little wealth actually trickles down to the local populations that need it. Yeah, so when we talk about the challenges with building and sustaining communities around NFTs and tokens, yeah, they're there, but there's challenges in the status quo too. Yeah. Right. So, Dan, I'd love to just sort of get your perspective on what else you're seeing out there in terms of other examples of open science projects that are benefiting from converging technologies like you're using at LabDAP. Yeah, 100%. There's one that kind of also relates to the New Atlantis work because it's the kind of artificial intelligence we'll need to understand the complexity, but is, is in the news for a lot of other reasons. These things called uh, large language models. Maybe you've heard of Dolly 2. It's the one you give it a piece of text. It draws an incredible picture you wouldn't believe is done by a computer. There's another platform, MidJourney, that's gotten to be really popular. Another technology in this field uh, called GPT, and it's a sort of text-to-text -text system. 
Recently, a Google engineer got in a lot of trouble because he said that one of these programs was sentient, and he went public saying that Google had a sentient AI. And <laughs> these systems are my core area of research as a, a mathematician, and I've been working with them for a number of years. One of the things that's really problematic, interesting, and complicated about them is they sort of squeeze the juice of the cultural data they're fed. And so with, for example, Dolly 2 being trained on the decades of work of many, many artists who released their art into the open, you know, the open source, not knowing it would be used to create a robot artist that would replace all of them. Like we now have like a really weird situation where these like very complex amalgams of the content of many, many contributors are now going to be the next trillion dollar products. And so I think that IP NFTs are really interesting because they kind of automate the complexity that is very real behind these new systems where you might have thousands or hundreds of thousands of contributors like to the data that's needed to train one of these AIs. Very cool. Does anyone in the audience have any questions for these very fascinating gentlemen? So I'm curious how you see like universities interacting with decentralized science, specifically for projects that are not, say, computational in nature. So the ones that require resources like laboratories and like physical actual resources. How can DSI, especially like DSI funding and IP management interact with universities and like technology transfer offices in a way that the university doesn't scream at everyone? So for the recording, the question was, how can universities interact with decentralized applications that require funding? I mean, such a good question. I kind of wish I could summon our beloved LabDAO founder, Nicholas, to field it, because he's doing incredible stuff actually negotiating deals like this with universities. And I think anyone who's done any scientific-facing work with the university shudders when you hear the phrase tech transfer office. And so there really is like a lot of work to be done finding places of collaborative alignment. But actually, like the non-digital, non-computational is one of the real motives, because in a lot of situations, you'll have a lab that has, say, like a mass spectrometer that has a lot of open time on it. And if there was some sort of like networking possible where that lab could find a service trading with another lab, you might have a lot more scientific work being done. But yeah, honestly, though, I have to say, like the computational has been one of the ways we get our foot in the door, because in a lot of situations, the kind of hackers and people doing frontier machine learning work, like they're not in the networks of more traditional scientific labs. And so in a lot of circumstances, we kind of get them to start the D-side handshake by finding a place where we can build something they really need. Hi, I'm very curious to know more about the projects that you do at LabDAO and also in terms of the fake products that can be now generated, which are very different to distinguish from real kind of products, whether it is art or text or anything. What do you see? that kind of dynamic playing into how, what it means to be, I don't want to ask a philosophical question, but what does it really mean to kind of like, you know, do something valuable or a human kind of a thing, because it's becoming more and more realistic and hard to distinguish between real and fake products. Are you referring to real and fake NFT projects? I mean, data products in general, but yeah, you can narrow the scope to any project that you think would explain how we can like, you know, find the right information in this, like this information with computer generated text and that kind of very hard to distinguish from like And I think one, one interesting component of this that you're alluding to is how do you differentiate someone with just an overly ambitious plan with a realistic plan from someone that's just out to be nefarious, right? Because I think both 
over ambition and nefarious natures are essentially a project that is very difficult to sustain, which is gets to the core of the problem. So good question. Oh, so good. Always get philosophical when I'm on the panel. I love that. <laughs> I was trying not to get a philosophical question because it's like I don't philosophize, but something concrete to like, you know, really kind of. No, listen, I, I love it. And I was even going to share that I saw actually this really interesting thing on Twitter. There's a philosophy done at Oxford, I follow. And he did an experiment where he took one of these new language models and had it write an essay that would have been like first essay you write in the grad the philosophy grad program. And so he had it generate a five-paragraph essay on the topic. He did a little bit of tweaking, and then he tried to have his other professors grade it and see if it passed, and it did pass. And so we're in a really weird era where, like, I think that we're going to have to get a lot smarter about how we verify BS for a bunch of different reasons. And you guys saw the, the article about the reporter that was interacting with Meta's new AI bot that was dissing on, on Zuckerberg. Did you guys see that? No, no, there's this... You can look it up, but Facebook created some sort of AI that was sort of asking about what Facebook's real attention is, and they're like, it's, it's evil. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Facebook's own bot saying that. GPT-3 said that Elon Musk was the most powerful person on the planet. <laughs> so, and to your point, like, I'm, I, mean, I think that you can't divorce the philosophical here, right? Because money ultimately... If what you're asking about is surreal versus fake, right? If you're talking about that in a market context, ultimately, like, so at the end of the day, you're really predicating this on, like, are people going to value something produced by an AI versus produced by a human? Is kind of what you're driving at? No, I'm kind of like, you know, I mean, it's so easy to kind of just now, I mean, like, you know, just copy and like, you know, just flood the market with I mean yeah no I think there's gonna be a lot of crap in the marketplace yeah, for sure like, there has been but yeah there has been but I think that like my personal feeling is that these tools are gonna really put the human creativity on asking the right questions mm -hmm. right and partnering with these AIs in ways to like develop an intuition about trying to get the right answer or useful answer out of them as opposed to just like putting in stuff and saying this is an end product and an interesting sort of kind of illustration of this is like I play with mid-journey a lot and the training data was only an image data sent that went through 2019 and apparently they don't have a lot of whales in their training data because if you try to get it to generate a whale it's super hard to get it to do a realistic whale because of Stanley's point they have this legacy data set that's in there and so you start you have to start to understand what are the limitations of the data sets that are in there and that's an opportunity for humans to start completing and providing more fleshed out data sets. But I also think it's going to be about like these tools give you a chance to ask new questions in new ways. And that and that that will be the value. Is a question you ask and then answer that can move society forward is going to be where a lot of the value is derived, in my opinion. And just plus one thing on there too, because I think I even like focused a little bit on like the verifiability of AI. And I think your question might have been like a little broader too, because even just like outside of Web3 stuff, it's getting harder to vet projects. Like we had Theranos happen, right? And this is an example like, no, it, seriously. And then for me, like as a machine learning scientist in, in recent years, the bulk of my work has been doing diligence and sort of going into companies, asking questions, trying to figure out, you know, what's true. I have to say, like, I think that particular thing, Web3 has a really interesting solution for, I just want to mention called Gitcoin. And it's sort of like using a transparent blockchain social signal to verify technical projects. And I love it. You know, it, it really is like I used to kind of have to go into companies 
figure out who was who, who to talk to, like, you know, and, and now it's kind of like you go on Gitcoin, the project has a very concise presentation, and then you can see transparently, specifically, who contributed money to the project. And so it creates almost like pre-baked social signal for, for the technical uh, merit. Yeah, I, th I think there's this underlying component of trust. And where does trust fit into the picture? Because we've seen projects with reputable founders that have been shams. And we've seen projects that have credible roadmaps that have been shams. And we see the opposite of projects that come out of nowhere with the folks that you didn't know but are doing amazing things in the industry. And it's complicated. I think there's going to be a continuous theme around verifiable trust and, and how that works. You have a question? Yeah, it's actually exactly on this point. So it's a good segue. In to the notion of decentralizing any sort of like coordination system associated with a common good, like in the ocean in your case, how do we control for bad actors? Because a lot of times people are either pseudo-anonymous or just anonymous completely. There's no KYC associated with almost any crypto system right now. At least that's the ethos. So what are the themes we should be thinking about when we're handing potentially like large sums of money over to actors that we can't verify. How do we control bad actors, especially when there's a lot of capital involved? Yeah, I mean, personally, I, I don't think you just hand it over. Like, I think you want to have some sort of like methodology or verifiability before it goes. It's a super complex question, right? So, one of the projects that I think is most inspiring and one of the best uses of data science out there is a company called Numeri. Um, it's spelled Numer AI, and they pronounce it Numeri. And, uh, does anybody here know Numeri? Um, so the goal, the guy named Richard Craig is the CEO and founder. It's an extremely smart approach to developing a hedge fund. And so what they, their goal is to be the quote, last hedge fund. And what they've done is they've issued a token called Numerair, NMR, the ticker. And they run weekly data science tournaments where they distribute their trading data that they've encrypted in a way that obscures what the actual underlying data is, but preserves the shape of the data, amorphic transforms. And they allow you to run as a data scientist predictions against the target, optimizing against whatever target variable they tell you to optimize against that week. And you as a data scientist can submit. And if your predictions are used in what is called their meta model, you get paid an NMR for that. The way that they control for like crap uploads and people just spamming the platform with a you know a bazillion uploads, hoping one of them gets picked up, is that if you want to get paid, you've got to stake NMR yourself. So if you put garbage in, you're going to get your stake essentially slashed. And so it's going to cost you to put like junk in there. So you're incentivized to only put in things that you think are actually going to generate real value. So you've got an alignment, which I think is a really important one, where you want to align self-interest with the public good. Because people will do the predictable thing over time, you know, over a long enough time frame. So relying on people to do the right thing is probably not a winning strategy, right? So if you want to go with the predictable thing where they're going to eventually sort of turn to their self-interest, you want to make sure that if they go down that road, that the outcome is going to be a net positive for the collective. And so I would encourage you to like numerize like, you know, it's a somewhat arcane thing that they're trying to do in the hedge fund world, but the model is a really good one. Very cool. One last question for you both as we wrap up. Stanley, what's next with LabDAO and where can folks learn more about what you're doing? 
Oh my gosh. Well, you know, LabDAO, you can uh, check out the website, but probably the Twitter's better. And I think it's just lab underscore DAO. We'll have um, a lot of content because it's an open project. So we're building in the open on the Twitter. So that'd probably be a good place. And um, right now I'm working on two really exciting projects, the new Atlantis metagenome pipeline, which I really think is, is going to do some good for the fishies. But then also I'm building something that's pretty fun. It's a, a deep learning approach to a drug discovery. So we're actually trying to find out whether any known molecules are helpful for rare diseases that don't have a large enough patient base to get expensive computational work. And I'm really excited and proud of that one. So you'll be able to see some of the proteins we're working with on the Twitter if you want to check it out. Great. And, and Gordon, where can folks learn more about you and what you're doing and anything else on your roadmap partnerships that you wanted to mention? Well, we're super psyched to be partnered with uh, LabDAO. And thank you to Stanley for all his wizardly work on New Atlantis and the Metagenome. He's our chief architect. We are uh, at New Atlantis now on Twitter, all one word. And we're also doing a Bitcoin round. So please, you know, even if it's just a dollar, just give us that because it's quadratic voting. So yeah, so that round starts on uh, September 7th. So um, please look for us there if you guys are Bitcoiners. Awesome. For myself, you can find Edge of NFT on Twitter at, at Edge of NFT. And also NFTLA is going to be at NFTLA.live on Twitter. And then it's edgeofnft.com, NFTLA.live. We have newsletters. We do events all over LA throughout the year and actually globally now. And our podcast features leaders in the space like these gentlemen every week. We recently just had Mila Kunis' business partner. We have Keith Grossman, the editor-in-chief of Time, coming on the show on Monday. We have the chairman of Filecoin. So if you really are excited about diving into this topic a little bit broader and what NFTs are doing and where the real utility is at, please get to know us better. Thank you all for your time. Okay, we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs today. Thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship, so invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us, and say something cool. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. We understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk. 